Ladies and gents, welcome to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast, where we talk about common orthopedic topics and try to get you well-versed in how to handle it, as well as maybe even get some OIT questions correct. Uh, I am one of the hosts, Dr. Cole, and I'm accompanied here by my sidekick. <laughs> sidekick. <laughs> yep. I'm, I'm more like the, the, main, the main lead, yeah. but... Whatever, guys. Hey, guys, this is Jay Fitz, and I'm so glad that y'all tuning back in for a little bit of our banner again this week. I think we got a great show. Uh, Cody is still confused, and I'm still teaching him new things. But you know, I uh, <laughs> I read the uh, – the con- if you look at our, some of our reviews, a lot of people say they, they like the banner. From I, I really think they're saying they like me, but, you know, they're saying they like the banner uh, that we bring to the show. So, you know, uh, kudos to you, man. I taught you well, so, you know, keep it up. Yeah, it has such a big ego, man. It's, it's a lot to deal with here. But uh, anyway, we, we can get into this. This is actually one of my favorite topics. I don't know. I, I remember even as a med student, I was kind of trying to understand these classifications pretty early on because I realized it was a it's the classification itself. The main one that people use is not that complicated. And if you know it, it makes you look like you're an all star. So uh, hint, hint to all the medical students who's listening out there. But today we are about to talk about uh tibial plateau fractures. And we have with us, who's giving this amazing talk, Dr. Githens, Dr. Michael Githens, excuse me. He did his uh, residency at Stanford University. He completed his fellow, his trauma fellowship at Harborview Medical Center, where he is now staff uh, for the, on the actual trauma service there. Uh, like I said, he did a great job. And actually, we did a two-part series with Dr. Githens. We went through uh, tibial plateau as well as tibial shaft. He was so good. We kept him coming back and we might even reach out again for for another show. So I think uh, we have a lot of good pearls in this one, a lot of operative pearls. So it, this can be beneficial to everyone from uh, med students all the way up to attendings. And I hope you guys enjoy the show. Uh, Cody, go get your pen and paper and try to relearn some of this stuff. <laughs> Everybody enjoy the show. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. We have another great show in store for you guys today. Uh, we have Dr. Michael Githens here with us today. He's going to speak about tibial plateau fractures. Thank you so much, Dr. Githens, for coming out and speaking spending some time with us to educate everybody. Well, thank you guys for having me. Uh, as I've said before, I am very excited to be part of this. I think you guys are doing a good thing in regards to providing a, a, an alternative educational platform in orthopedics and uh, particularly trauma. So I'm, I'm happy to participate. Yeah. Again, thanks again so much. You know, we actually learned a lot through, through that Instagram page as well. Um, so we, we thank you for uh, helping out with that and then also being a guest on the podcast yeah absolutely and um so we always kind of start off with just some general questions just getting to know you um as a person and the first question i have is kind of the age-old question is what what kind of brought you into the field of trauma out of all the different fields that you could have so the i i learned pretty early on that i liked being in the operating room for the complex cases, the long cases. I enjoyed the management of the, you know, polytraumatized or multi-system injured patient. And uh, 
yeah, yeah I, th I think the road sort of diverges fairly early and pretty clearly with most residents in that you either recognize that you like long, hard, complex surgeries and you enjoy the inpatient setting, or you like doing uh, simpler surgeries, don't take quite as long, um, and are done in the outpatient setting. And I've, I fell into the former group, and so I sat you know, with mentors and said, Hey, I think orthopedic oncology is very cool. The surgeries are cool. Um, I like spine. I liked trying to identify pathology on imaging and then correlate or not with their exam and then find a surgery or not that would help them. And I loved trauma and that every day it was something different. You know, even every femoral shaft fracture is different. And so I, I liked the complexity and the diversity there. And so after realizing that I wanted that side of things as compared to uh, arthroscopy, uh, hand surgery, or things like that, I really sat down and talked with folks about, um, you know, the patients that you're treating, how are you helping them, um, what things go wrong and such. And to me, everything about trauma felt right in regards to the patient population, the services that you can provide. Um, and then it felt right for me. And that is oftentimes can be very satisfying, very challenging and different every day. And, I, and that's what, it, you know, I, I like complex joint reconstruction, but I didn't want to do uh, total knees and total hips for the rest of my life. I wanted something that was more diverse. And, uh, you know, I think some people are terrified about the idea of waking up in the morning and being like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing today. Let me check my email. But to me, that's what's exciting and challenging about it. So that's, I mean, that's really what, what drew me into trauma. You know what, that's, uh, that's something I've been thinking about, you know, because I have some interest. I'm kind of all over the place, so I'm interested yep. in everything. But have you, you should be. You should be at this point, right? Everything is is potentially new and exciting. So keep your keep the blinders off. Yes, sir. That's what I that's what I try for. But I was going to ask: Do you know or do in your experience have you seen a lot of trauma surgeons maybe get double certified or either actually go for two fellowships or just in their practice do both trauma and joints or have like that that elective side of things? Yes. And I would say uh, if you are planning on going into trauma as your primary subspecialty, you need to be very thoughtful about that decision in regards to am I going to do a second fellowship uh, or am I going to have an elective practice? I know many people who go into trauma do a trauma fellowship only and then also build a joint reconstruction practice. So they do mm. their total hips, total knees, total shoulders on the side. I think that works well, particularly in a private practice model right. uh, as compared to an academic center where you have your dedicated joints team, you have your dedicated trauma team. Um, and then uh, even more importantly, I think it's, you need to be very intentional about what you are going to do with your second fellowship. So I do, I mean, many of our fellows will do trauma and then shoulder elbow or trauma and peds. And you begin putting yourself into a pretty niche situation there. If you're going to say, I'm going to be that guy at a place that does trauma plus this. So while you may see yourself as diversifying your opportunities, you may actually have 
less opportunity at any given place. And so if you know, like you, you train in residency and you know you want to come back there and they're going to need somebody who does trauma and shoulder elbow, Mm -hmm. then that's a golden opportunity for you. But yeah, I think that you got, you know, it is an extra year of your life, uh, extra um, investment in regards to finances too, to say, I'm going to do a second fellowship and then turn out not to use it because wherever you get that job doesn't necessarily need that skill set. So I think you do see it commonly. I think sometimes it works out really well. Sometimes it doesn't. And so I think the people who are thinking about doing that should just be very intentional about why and how they're going to apply their skill sets. Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's a great answer. It's something that I know I've been thinking about as far as, you know, do, do I do one or two fellowships? And, you know, if you're trauma trained, are you can you still do other things? So um, I know that's something I didn't even necessarily know coming into residency that you could do. So uh, we definitely appreciate your you shedding light on that. And um, I think I think we go ahead and transition and, and get into the case for today, our topic of the day, and uh, which is going to be tibia plateau fractures. And we kind of have a case that we just made up um, that we'd like to go start off with, and then we'll kind of go from there. So, say for example, we get a call from the ED. Uh, they tell us we have a 54-year-old female who is a pedestrian hit by a motor vehicle collision, and we're consulted because they have an open tibia fracture. And they also say they have other injuries, including bilateral pneumothoraxes, a splenic laceration, and blood pressure in the 80s systolic over 50s diastolic. So I guess from the orthopedic standpoint, what are some things like we should be on the lookout for when we start to go and get a history and examine this patient? Yeah, so the patient that you describe is an extremis, and I know this has been mentioned before in your podcast, but... Obviously, the whomever is running that trauma code is going to go through the A, Bs, and Cs and make sure that the patient is stable for your orthopedic evaluation. And then because we're talking about tibial plateau fractures, we'll focus our energy there. But of course, you're going to do a primary survey followed by a secondary survey looking at every other square centimeter of this patient's body to make sure that you do not see or feel anything unusual. And if you do, you're going to image it, you're going to image above and below it. So we don't miss anything on our primary and secondary surveys. Um, but when you focus specifically on this patient's, uh, quote, open tibia fracture, um, you may or may not have spot films already. So you might ha have an idea of what the skeletal injury is, but your job on the examination is to identify the non-skeletal injuries and 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 where the abcs rule out the life-threatening situation your job as an orthopedic resident is next to rule out the limb-threatening uh, injuries and that is principally the vascular injury and the neurologic injury and the potential for compartment syndrome and then of course you're looking at the open wound and you're getting ready to characterize that so from a vascular standpoint, you guys are going to first palpate pulses, but then very importantly, get ABIs. And hopefully uh, everybody who's listening to this knows how to obtain an ABI. But an ABI less than 0 0.9, it raises a red flag for a vascular injury. And in that case, the patient needs a vascular consultation and whatever appropriate pathway your institution has to work up a vascular injury. Um, nerve exam is specific to the specific nerves 
and uh, different fracture patterns will lead to different neurologic injury patterns. So you need to be specific with that. And then of course, examining the compartments, uh, which is, uh, you know, we're in 2020, still have a challenge with compartment syndrome. And you hear about the, the five P's and pulselessness and pallor. And when you get to that point, you're too far gone. So it really, you as residents uh, need to load the boat. Um, if you think somebody's got a potential compartment syndrome, if their leg is very swollen, if they have extreme pain, pain that's poorly controlled based on what their injury pattern is, pain to passive stretch, pain, 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 that's out of proportion to what you think they should have. That is the patient that you say, okay, this went from something that may be urgent or relatively elective to now emergent. So there's a compartment syndrome piece to it. So, and, and then the open fracture and how you're going to deal with the wound in the emergency department. That's what your orthopedic physical exam should be focused on. So, and on that note, what are some of the things where, you know, when we're down there in the emergency department, as far as evaluating the soft tissues, what, what are some of the things we're kind of looking for to uh, let us know how, you know, you know, just pretty much as far as planning of, on what may come down the road for surgery with some of these wounds that you may see with these fractures? Yeah, so it's a huge spectrum, right? I mean, you could have anything from a poke hole that has a little bit of venous ooze from it. Uh, at the apex of one of the metaphyseal fragments to a completely degloved and mangled leg. And so it's, it's a bit hard to say, but in that spectrum, you're going to be thinking about, okay, where the location of this open wound, the degree of contamination, potential for associated vascular neurologic injuries. And then, you know, if you get towards the end of that spectrum, the 10 out of 10 mangled leg, you're starting to think, like I'm going to plant the seed. I'm not going to tell the patient that they're getting an amputation. I'm going to at least plant the seed and talk to them about that. The, the rest outside of the potential for an amputation, you're, you as a resident are thinking, okay, how contaminated is this wound? I'm going to clean it out. Are there bone fragments that are outside of the body that we still need to preserve for part of the operation in regards to reduction sequence? That bone will later be discarded. Um, but you know, main, maintaining bone fragments, cleaning the wound, sterilely dressing it, um, and making sure that, that there's no associated vascular injury. Now that's sort of on the, the, the more extreme end of the spectrum, but you will see plenty of those. Yeah. I mean, there's times that, you know, every once in a while, some of these higher energy traumas, you end up you know, reducing them or something like that in the emergency department. Next thing you know, a large chunk of bone fall on the floor. Now you're like, oh man, <laughs> yeah. this is great. <laughs> yep. So, so what do you know. guys do with that? What do you do with the chunk of bone that falls on the floor when you reduce an open fracture? So now it's, it's one thing if we're in the, I've seen different things in the OR versus yep. just in the ED. Now in the emergency department, um, if I've had that happen, you know, I might, I'll put it in some, I don't know, I don't know the, the best way. I don't know the right answer to this, first of all, but I'll probably put it into some iodine and uh, I, I would actually check with the upper ups. And if, if I think it's like a, a large piece of bone that I really think they may need, I'm going to ask them like, hey, so this, this happened. It was on the floor in the emergency department. You know, what's your thoughts about this? You know, um, versus in the OR, I've seen things a little bit more, things, the environment is a little bit more controlled and, 
there was a little bit better of a, a flow to things as far as trying what to do with that that bone piece or that bone fragment. So I don't know. I, I, it all depends on the size, how big, and kind of how much bone loss we're talking about. So I, I completely agree with you. There have been papers that have been written on this in the sports literature. They talk about dropping the graft on the floor in the OR and what do you do with that? Um, there's also papers about that with bone fragments. The bottom line is in the ED, if that bony fragment falls on the floor, you're going to assess the importance of it, just as you said, right? If that is the entire lateral femoral condyle, right. one would argue that that's more important than a six centimeter shard of femoral metaphysis, right? Right. So if that's a lateral femoral condyle, that should be soaked in betadine uh, sterilized as best possible and then put back in the patient's body Okay. as compared to that metaphyseal fragment, which it still may be important and you shouldn't discard it, but it can be soaked and then preserved in a bag brought down to the operating room, put in a freezer where you keep your fibular allografts or whatnot. And then at the time of surgery, if you're saying, Hey, that's an important puzzle piece that I need to use can be sterilized you can put it in the patient's body, use it as a puzzle piece, but it's dead and it's not necessarily useful. Mm -hmm. So once you've used it as your template for reconstruction, you take that piece of bone out, throw it in the trash and manage the bone defect however you want. But um, yeah, I think we're getting off in the weeds a bit. We're away from yeah. No, this is great. This is still but, good. I love it. But yeah, no, I think these are important concepts. So if you need to retain that. You need to clean it, retain it. The wound in that situation is highly contaminated anyways. So yeah, you soak it in betadine, you, you preserve it within the patient's body. The metaphyseal bone, um, you can bring down to the operating room separate from the patient. All right. Well, there we go. I was almost right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so we're going to keep moving with our case here. So we we've did our physical exam in the, the emergency department. Uh, and we're suspecting, you know, we, it's pretty obvious he has a uh, injury to the lower extremity. What imaging would we be uh, getting next to further evaluate this, uh, this patient? So as uh, in any articular injury, you're going to get orthogonal views. So you're going to get AP and a lateral view of the patient's knee. You're going to image the long bone above it, and you're going to image the long bone that's involved. So you're going to get full-length femur films you're going to get full length tibia films. And then in a polytraumatized patient, again, anything that raises a suspicion, you're going to image that as well. So that's going to get you started. You're going to, at that point, know what the skeletal injury is. You have already detailed what the soft tissue injury and the potential for vascular and neurologic injuries are. So you've got almost all of the information that you need for the first stage, if not all of the information that you need for the first stage. And I had a question because like in the books you'll read and, and some of them will say you can get an AP in the plane of the plateau, you know, with that caudal tilt. Do, yep. Does anybody, I haven't really seen a lot of people actually get that film, but is that something that, you know, you routinely sometimes get or you just go with the normal AP of the knee? So in the trauma setting, a routine AP is fine because you're oftentimes going to have sagittal and coronal plane displacement with that fracture right so if you say hey i want that seven to ten degrees of plateau tilt on my injured plateau it, you know if you have an intact medial side you may see a nice crisp articular surface on the medial side the lateral side is not but if you have both joints involved whether you have tilt or not it's not going to matter 
because you're looking for the deformed articular fragments, which are not going to be in that plane. But you bring up an excellent point in that knowing what the, what an intact or normal plateau looks like and how to obtain radiographic views to assess that is absolutely critical in knowing if you put this thing back together right. So that note, like knowing what their slope is, is super important. Because if I've got a biconototibial plateau fracture, metadiaphyseal dissociation, and I, I, like, I don't really know what sort of tilt I'm supposed to have by the end, I could build it back all wrong. So it, I would say that also getting a perfect, and I typically do this in the operating room before I start the definitive fixation, getting a perfect AP with that tilt and a perfect lateral view will tell of the other side, the uninjured side, will tell me what I'm going to rebuild the broken side back to. Because if you image, took a, took a lateral image of 100 people's plateaus, their tilt's going to be, di- every single one of them is going to be different. You're going to have some that are going to have zero slope. You're going to have some that are going to have 10 degrees of slope, and you're going to have a bunch in between. And so if you just assume that everybody has 10 degrees of slope, and you rebuild them all that way, you're going to be rebuilding a lot of them to not match the how or to, you know, it's not like it was before it was broken. So I I think your point is very good and that you need to know what a normal plateau looks like, but everybody's plateau is a little bit different. So get images of the other side. And for me, that goes for most articular injuries. If I want to fix a pilon perfectly, I'm going to get an image of the other side and I'm going to print it out and I'm going to hang it up in the room so that I know what the side that I'm fixing is supposed to look like. Yep. I think that's a good pearl for probably all the young, young surgeons and different things like that. It's just, you know, remember uh, our maker gave us two sides so that you can always use the other <laughs> right. one to kind of help yeah. you out. So uh, moving to advanced imaging, what is your, uh, what I guess, how do you usually go about that as far as when to get the CT or do you get an MRI, MRI at all and different things like that? So it's the CT should typically be done after spanning, knee spanning external fixation because with ligamentotaxis, you restore normal alignment and a CT scan is much easier to interpret. There are rare circumstances in which case I'd recommend getting a CT scan before external fixation. And again, we're talking sort of Schatzker five sixes, right? We're not not talking about a simple lateral plateau. Um, But if you're anticipating somebody needing a knee spanning external fixator, then I would wait to get the CT unless they have an articular fragment with a long, long metaphyseal or metadiaphyseal extension that you may want to take that day and say, I'm going to X fix this, but I also want to clamp, reduce, and fix this segment to make this a length stable pattern. That's a pretty rare circumstance, um, but otherwise I'm getting a CT scan after external fixation, not before. Making that decision though is like, okay, do I have a length stable pattern that doesn't need an X fix? So do I have my simple lateral split depression? In which case you don't need an X fix. You're going to go straight to the definitive operation. So you should get the CT scan up front. Right. And I think that's, that's perfect. You actually mentioned Shaster six or Shaster five and um, a couple other 
types of injuries of tibial plateaus. I want to see if you could really touch um, base on how do we classify these injuries and kind of what what's used. Yeah, so there's two different classification systems that are commonly used. There are many others that have been used to describe tibial plateau fractures. The ones that you're the one that you will hear about uh, most often is the Schatzker classification, which is one through six. Uh, the one through three involve the lateral tibial plateau. Four involves the medial plateau. Five and six involve both the medial and lateral tibial plateau. The other classification that's commonly referred to is the AOOTA classification, which classifies all skeletal fractures and is really good when it comes down to uh, understanding articular fractures and then implant function, but it's also very good for describing fractures from a research standpoint. So when you talk about plateaus, you'll hear mostly about those. You'll also hear about uh, the column theory, which will sort of divide the plateau up into columns and can be helpful in regards to fracture pattern dictating fixation strategies. Is that column theory? Is that where you're talking about? You have like the, the medial, lateral, and posterior column? Is that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And that, you know, that, that really, I, I think it's important to understand the plateau from that vantage um, in that when you have posterior column involvement, whether it's in typically posterior medial, that's a shearing type of injury oftentimes. And those are the ones that really need dual plate fixation. So I think that column theory is important when it comes to understanding load transmission through the plateau and your fixation strategy to resist that. But, you know, for most of the folks who are listening to this, I think Schatzker is probably the most relevant classification to be discussing. And then if you want to talk about implant function, the, the AO OTA classification is helpful. And on that, because um, like you said, I think everybody a little bit more used to using the Shasker classification. And I was thinking maybe even when we go into treatment, we kind of break it down by how would you treat the Shasker one versus two. And it just makes it a little bit easier for everybody to follow along. But on, you know, a lot of the common uh, data banks and different things like that, that residents use for studying, uh, there's always some common associations that's with some of the Shasker uh, classification, Shasker types. Can you go over some of those that, that you might look out for, say, you know, which ones may be a little bit more uh, concerning for compartment syndrome, which ones you may need to look out for different ligamentous injuries and things like that? Yeah, of course. So the most common uh, tibial plateau fracture pattern is going to be your lateral split depression plateau, whether that's high energy or low energy, that's going to be the most common. And associated with that injury is commonly a, a lateral meniscus tear. So that is a testable question, comes up all the time, and it is very true in practice. So if you've got a lateral split depressed plateau, you need to do something to assess the uh, integrity of the lateral meniscus. Uh, the other uh, often tested Schatzker is, uh, type is type four. So that's a medial, that's an isolated medial tibial plateau fracture. It's oftentimes a shearing variant and the femur always follows the medial plateau. So if you break your medial tibial plateau, uh, especially with a shearing mechanism, you have an effective knee dislocation. 
So that comes up oftentimes. That's a, a, a four is oftentimes the equivalent of a fracture dislocation. They are associated with an increased rate of vascular injury. Um, and then in regards to compartment syndrome, I think that every single patient needs to be assessed and we need to have concern for a compartment syndrome, but you have an increased rate of compartment syndrome and your, your higher energy patterns, which result in Chatsker five and six type of injuries. Also type four, you need to be very, very careful about. Um, patients who have that shearing injury to the medial plateau uh, oftentimes have medial meniscal pathology as well. And on top of that, when you dislocate the knee, uh, medially, you're going to potentially have a parent or not potentially, but commonly a perineal nerve injury. It's usually a neuropraxia from stretch, but very commonly with that varus force, you have uh, a, a common perineal nerve injury and potentially a posterior lateral corner injury or the fibular head will pop off. So those patterns, you got to look out for all of those things. Yeah, I think that was an excellent, um, excellent overview of the associations. And I know I've done some questions and those exact same, uh, those exact same questions are asked and you kind of just went over everything. Great. That was perfect. Um, so now I kind of want to switch in, switch gears and go into treatment. Um, and first, what, which one of these fractures are you not operating on? What are the indications to not operate on a tibial plateau fracture and um, treat it? I mean, and, and what treatment choice would you be doing if you chose non-operative uh, management? So the goal of any treatment, whether operative or non-operative, is to leave the patient with a knee joint whose anatomic axis uh, is normal, it matches their other side, uh, to maintain a normal mechanical axis. So if that mechanical axis is deviated, they're gonna wear out one compartment or the other. So then you think, all right, is this plateau, if it's completely non-displaced, is it at risk for a loss of alignment? And, and that comes down to the pattern itself. Is it a shearing pattern that's non-displaced or is it some other pattern that's non-displaced? Because even, even in, the, uh, in the setting of a non-displaced, initially non-displaced plateau fracture, just with knee flexion, you can displace a posteromedial or a posterolateral fragment. So it's, it, it, it becomes a bit tricky pretty quickly in regards to, am I going to non-op this plateau? If you have a completely non-displaced and you've got a crack um, and it's not a posterior column shearing sort of pattern, you're going to treat it non-operatively. Put them in a hinge knee brace and you're going to keep them non-weight bearing from somewhere at a minimum of six weeks up to three months non-weight bearing. Um, if you've got a lateral split depression with two to five millimeters of depression and depending where it is on, in regards to the weight bearing surface and they've got a good meniscus, then you may not need to operate on it. So that threshold of articular incongruity is very debatable. For me, if it's, if it's two millimeters or less and importantly, they don't have instability to a valgus stress then you can treat them non-operatively. So, and I think that's a critical point when you're talking about laterally based plateau fractures. If they're not significantly displaced, you need to have a good exam and know 
whether or not they have valgus instability because an x-ray is static, right? A CT scan is static. You don't know what's going to happen when you push that femoral condyle down onto the plateau. And so if you push it down and it doesn't move, if their fibular neck isn't fractured and it, it's just not moving, then it's probably not going to move. If you, if you give them a valgus stress and they go into a significant amount of valgus as compared to their other side, you know that their x-ray wasn't telling you the truth about how that fracture is going to behave. So it's, I'd, I'd say that the lateral, lateral plateaus need a stress examination um, and, then, and, and then you need to pay real careful attention to the, the fracture pattern because a non-displaced plateau that uh, is treated non-operatively and then displaces and you have to treat uh, several months later with an intraarticular osteotomy is a whole lot harder than doing a couple of percutaneous screws just to maintain the position of that plateau at the same time. And then you get into the discussion of um, patient comorbidities. And if you have somebody who is really, really in extremis or uh, multiple, multiple comorbidities, and you say the risks of this surgery are higher than the potential benefits, then you're not gonna offer that patient the surgery. I'd say that's pretty rare, uh, but it does come up. Okay. And like we were saying, for now we can get into the kind of the meat, head into the operative, uh, the operative type of fractures as well. And oh, yeah. I was th thinking maybe that we could go through them as, you know, pretty much the classifications types from the Shasker classification. We can just go through each one and go through how you would go about uh, fixing that type of fracture. So for a Schatzker one and two, those are shearing patterns on the lateral side. One does not have any joint depression, two does. And then a three is very rare, which is a joint depression without a metaphyseal split and exit. The, uh, all three of these, uh, well, actually I'd say twos and threes are treated the same in my book. A lateral split without a depression also is quite rare. Um, but, uh, it, it's a anterolateral approach. So it's a lazy S incision, which is centered over Gertie's tubercle. And then, uh, for me, always, uh, application of a universal distractor on the lateral aspect of the leg, one pin in the distal femur, one in the diaphysis of the tibia to create a varus moment. That's for two reasons. One is to, well, it's for multiple reasons. One is you want to tension the knee joint capsule in the meniscus so that you can actually make a proper submeniscal arthrotomy without getting into the meniscus. Two, it's to pull the femur out of the hole that it's made in the tibial plateau. And three, it gives you that visualization that you need to know that your reduction is proper. So I will always put on a distractor on the lateral side, um, uh, do a submeniscal arthrotomy, evaluate the integrity of the meniscus, evaluate the uh, articular fracture involvement, and then decide my strategy for fixation. For a lateral split, that's a partial articular fracture that failed in shear, so that gets a buttress plate that's applied. If you have associated depression, before you are uh, putting a buttressing plate on, you are tamping up the articular surface, whether that is through a metaphyseal cortical window using what we call the containment strategy, versus the open book strategy where you are displacing the metaphyseal crack to 
pull, uh, to push those articular fragments up. Those are two different strategies, uh, both widely used. My preference would be a containment strategy if possible, but the bottom line is you're, uh, you're, um, disimpacting the impacted articular surface. You're bringing it up so that it is uh, as well anatomically reduced as possible and then backfilling that void with some sort of, uh, um, whether it's a synthetic bone void filler or allograft to support the articular fragments and using a buttressing plate to, to support that sheared off metaphyseal fragment and rafting screws to support the articular segments. So that's a pretty standard treatment for one, twos, and threes. Do you typically use a, like 3.5 millimeter plates for for um, your lateral plateaus? Yeah, so plate, you, you know, you can, and I think Dr. Earhart talked about this in his podcast with you guys, which was awesome, but um, plate function, which, you know, you could, you could take a, three five recon plate and put it at the apex of this fracture and use it as a buttress plate and then you could do independent multiple independent lag screws for the joint you could do a pre-contoured uh, proximal tibial lateral plate so it really is sort of how what the plate design and its function so in somebody who's got a good bone uh, I think a pre-contoured 3.5 millimeter stainless steel uh, proximal tibial anterolateral plate uh, with four rafting screws uh, thoughtfully placed across the articular surface is a perfectly good plate design and you want to apply it in a buttressing mode. And, and those rafting screws, those are within like, within like, what, like 10 millimeters or so of the articular surface to pretty much just support um, that that reconstructed surface is that correct that so that's the job of those screws but you'll find when you do uh, more and more of these operations that uh, one plate fits no one perfectly and so sometimes you'll be lucky and the way that plate that plate fits you get those screws six millimeters under the subchondral surface and they do a great job of supporting those fragments but sometimes it won't so per, you may place a uh, 2.0 millimeter brim plate above that with additional set of rafting screws. Or if you've got very small fragments, you may choose to leave K wires in for fragment specific fixation. But your point is very good in that the whole goal is to restore and maintain the articular surface. And so if the rafting plate isn't doing it, you need, or the rafting screws aren't doing it, you need something else that is doing it. And, and do you have a preference for what you use? Um, I guess as your graph to support that defect. Like I, I know we're, when we're looking at this, we read some things about like calcium phosphate cement and you know, there's a lot of different things that you could use. Yes, there are. I, I do have a preference. My own personal preference is crushed cancellous allograft chips that are impacted into that defect for the majority of fractures. The reason I like that is you can control it very well. Uh, you can impact them very densely. So they provide good support. Uh, and it's the most inexpensive option. Now, there are no studies comparing allograft versus synthetic. There are studies looking at autograft versus synthetic, so calcium phosphate, as you're mentioning, um, or uh, other derivatives, which may be calcium sulfate plus hydroxyapatite and a bunch of other variations. 
those studies have clearly shown, and I think we all know now that allogra or I'm sorry, that autograft is uh, inferior compared to synthetics in regards to compressile strength. So you shouldn't be filling these defects with autograft. The problem is not healing; it's not biology. The problem is su is supporting the articular surface. So you need something with high compressile strength. I think that allograft and synthetics are probably equivalent. Nobody's really effectively studied that, but my preference is allograft chips. And, and one more quick question for these, do you typically just use cortical screws throughout or do you sometimes mix um, cortical and locking screws? It, so it's very rare for me to use locking construct for a lateral tibial plateau. Even in elderly patients, the subchondral bone on the medial side is typically quite good. So it is uh, uh, unnecessary in most cases to be using a, la a laterally based locking plate for a lateral fracture pattern. All right. And so moving on to say the Shasker four, five, and six, what, what is the approach for those as well? So for the majority of four, fives, and six, uh, they are high energy injuries. They're associated with significant soft tissue injuries and they need to be staged. So my approach to that is to, you know, if they have associated vascular injuries dealing with that on an emergent basis, but in the absence of that or compartment syndrome, the next day or first case or second case, they get uh, spanned with a knee spanning external fixator uh, to restore length alignment and rotation in both the coronal and the sagittal and axial plane and then uh, get a CT scan and then we wait for their soft tissues uh, injury to uh, evolve or devolve and um, plan their second stage uh, as as their soft tissue injury allows. How long do you usually wait uh, for though? And you know, what, what is a, a good sign? What are the signs that you're looking for to know that the, the skin is ready for a major surgery? So if this is a closed fracture, what you're waiting for is for the skin basically to be supple uh, and, and have that quote wrinkle sign. So if you have, if you have fracture blisters, particularly hemorrhagic fracture blisters, if you have shiny skin that you could bounce a quarter off of, those are all signs that say you should not operate on this limb. Um, you wait until that the edema comes down so that the skin starts to wrinkle. In regards to an open fracture, I think it depends on where the traumatic wound is, but I'm very reticent to operate on a patient who's got an open wound that hasn't started to heal yet. So I'm, I'm conservative there and I will wait two, three, four weeks to make sure that that wound is sealing up and uh, not draining that uh, serous fluid before I operate on them. Um, the last part of that is somebody who's had fasciotomies at the time they're spanning, and you can either try to close them before you fix them, or you can fix them and then skin graft them, and there doesn't seem to be any difference in regards to complications with that particular strategy. So fasciotomies are a little bit of a different situation. You know, at, at some point, I think we're going to do a soft tissue management episode because I, I could go on and on about this, that part of things. But um, let's say at this point, the, the patient's now ready. He has skin wrinkles. 
the soft tissues now look ready for uh, further surgery. Uh, so how, how do you go about the, the next stage of management for them? So the next stage of management for me is planning the operation and that is highly dependent. So there's a closed fracture. So I don't have to worry about wound locations affecting my approaches. I plan my approach based off of the fracture pattern. And that's going to, you know, if this is a Schatzker, let's, let's say this is a Schatzker five where you've got a lateral split the press plateau, you've got a posteromedial fragment that's off in shear, and then you have the anteromedial fragment that's in continuity with the tibial shaft. To me, that is begging for fragment-specific fixation for both of the components that failed in shear, and I want to buttress both of those. I'm going to start on the medial side. Uh, because we've talked about the femur following the medial tibial plateau. And so it's much easier to fix the medial side first and then go to the lateral side. So we'll do a buttressing plate from a posteromedial approach. And then once I've got stable fixation for the medial column, I'll go to the lateral side and apply that distractor. I'll look at the joint and I'll fix it properly and then apply a buttressing plate. Now, if you've got let's say you've got a lateral split, you've got the, uh, the entire medial condyle is fractured off, but you don't have a lot of medial comminution. It's a simple pattern on that side. That may be a pattern that's amenable to treatment with a laterally based approach only. So it's, it, it, it comes down to specific fracture pattern and how are you choosing to approach it and then definitive implants to maintain your reduction. So when you're thinking about doing that lateral, pretty much you're going to treat it with a lateral plate, even though there's some medial side sided uh, bone injury as well. Are you doing locking plates, non-locking plates? Kind of what's your thoughts on that? It's a, a beautiful question. So <laughs> I think that this, you have to be very careful when you think about fixing a bicondylar tibial plateau fracture with a laterally based plate only. You think back to the column theory where you've got both of the columns that are unstable. And then you think about a fat kid on the end of a diving board. So that, that's basically what, what we think about when we fix a distal femur with a laterally based locking plate or a bicondylar tibial plateau fracture with a laterally based locking plate. You're gonna have eccentric loading on that implant. So in order for that to work, you need some degree of intrinsic stability on the medial side. Mm -hmm. That means fragment to fragment loading. And then you need, like you said, a locking plate and you need a stouter than a 3.5 millimeter plate. And so I'll go back to, to imagine that, uh, that medial side, you have a completely comminuted medial metaphysis. And then you put that laterally based locking plate on and the patient starts to walk on it. Mm -hmm. It's going to, it's going to want to bend, right? That plate and the screws are going to want to bend just like there's somebody on the end of a diving board. If you have the medial side where you have main, main fragment contact. So you've got the metaphyseal, block with the articular surface and then it's not comminuted but it's a simple pattern and you have it lined up so you have cortical contact on the medial side 
now you have load transmission from main fragment to main fragment. So that diving board isn't really bending so much anymore. It's like there's somebody standing underneath the diving board and holding it up. It's that intrinsic stability from main fragment contact to main fragment contact. So, so I think that's number one to me. If I'm looking at a bicondylar plateau and thinking, can I fix this with a laterally based implant only? I want to know that I have medial main fragment to main fragment contact. Number two, I'm definitely using a locking implant. And number three, I'm using a four, five, five, five implant instead of a three, five implant. Because what will happen otherwise is that will start to drift into varus. And we know that if somebody drifts into varus, even if their articular surface is perfectly reduced, they're going to get compartmental loading and pretty rapid arthrosis from it. Or the plate's going to break. Okay. So that's Shasker. Let's see, Shasker 4, we said medial-sided plate. Uh, look out for the posterior medial fragment for some shearing. Um, yeah, sorry. I kind of went through those in a bad order. But yeah, if you have a Shasker <laughs> 4 only, um, it's typically uh, it's a shearing pattern, and you're going to put a buttressing plate back there. Um, the challenging fracture patterns are ones that also have medial articular involvement. In those cases, uh, it's very tricky because unlike the lateral side, you can't make an extensile submeniscal arthrotomy, right? You have the medial meniscus, is in, its insertion is on the MCL. You can't do a longitudinal incision through the MCL and lift up the meniscus and look at the joint injury. So joint injury on the medial side becomes very challenging. But in the absence of that, Schatzker 4 gets buttress plates. Schatzker 5 gets fragment-specific fixation. Schatzker 6 uh, depends on the fracture pattern. Most of the time for me, because I think they're typically at a fairly high rate uh, or fairly high risk of failing into varus, I'll put a dual column plate of 6. But occasionally, if you have good intrinsic stability on the medial side, a laterally base plate only is okay if it's... Uh, larger uh, and it's blocking. And um, just to quickly touch on your point, I know you're talking about the medial sided injury and, and, you know, having trouble making that submeniscal arthrotomy. I've read some um, places where they'll, at least I've read it, it states that some people will use arthroscopy to assist with their reduction. In real practice, I haven't really seen anybody do that, but do is that being done to help, uh, you know, get a better visualization? So it, it is being done, certainly not in my hands because I'm a terrible arthroscopist, <laughs> and I, you know, yeah. that, that I would just uh, do more damage than good. But I think that there are, there are people who are skilled fracture surgeons and skilled arthroscopists who actually find this technique pretty useful. Um, and particularly on the medial side, we talked about there being an association with uh, medial meniscal tears. And so I think that there's a discrete advantage there. I, I don't think that it's really used um, in mainstream fracture care only because it's, it's technically difficult. Uh, but I think that there, you know, it can have its advantages. For me on the medial side, if I need to look into the joint, I'm identifying where the fracture exit points are and I'm making small incisions there and looking at the white, white sort of cartilage border and assessing my reduction there. You can work in front of and behind the MCL. So you, you can get a pretty good 
view of the medial joint line if you know where the fracture exits are. Okay, cool. I, th I think that was that was perfect. Um, that was a great explanation. Now, say you know we have these patients, we fix them, we put a, a you know a dual plate on a SASTRA six. Uh, what is kind of the post op course for you? You know, are you allowing them to range their knee? Um, you know, when do they when can they start to bear weight? You know, what what you know what is uh, the post op course? So primary goal is early motion. We know that, so that's the AO basics fourth principle, right? Is get the articular segments moving as fast as possible or as early as possible. And there are very good basic science studies to support that early passive and active motion in the absence of shear. So motion in the absence of shear is what cartilage needs to heal. So my goal now that's, that's balanced by the soft tissue injury. You start moving a badly injured soft tissue envelope early and you generate wound complications. So again, it's patient specific, but for me, early active and passive range of motion is key. Uh, I will sort of let them slide for say the first, as an inpatient, I'm not going to be putting them in a CPM. I don't think there's any evidence to support CPM use. But I am going to encourage beginning early active and passive motion. And then at the two-week mark, I'm going to check their wounds. So long as their wounds are good, I get them into physical therapy. And I say unrestricted active and passive range of motion with the exception of patients who have an associated tibial tubercle fracture that has been repaired. I think that's important to recognize because if, if you don't repair a tubercle fracture and you ask them to do active extension, they're going to pop it off. And now you have an extensor mechanism problem. If it's fixed, you want to protect that. If they don't have it, you don't need to worry about it. Um, so that may affect your rehab protocol. But otherwise, it is early and fairly aggressive range of motion in the absence of weight bearing. And uh, all plateaus for me will get three months of uh, toe touch weight bearing and then a progressive weight bearing at three months once they've consolidated. I don't like hinge knee braces. I think that unless you have the exotic pattern in which you have an associated, so you have that medial fracture dislocation with an associated posterolateral lateral corner injury where they need a brace. Most of the time when you fix these, the vast, vast majority of the time when you fix a plateau, they are ligamentously stable and don't need a brace. And I think a brace hinders patient's motion in that they, they, you know, they think oh, I've got a brace on, I've got a bad injury. I don't want to move my knee which is the opposite is like, yes, you did have a bad injury. Now it's fixed and you need to move your knee. I loved it. I, I think this talk was absolutely awesome. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I'm already planning on probably listening to this again tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. free time. You guys are probably going to have to edit it out. I know I'm long winded and I thought, Oh no, for that, that was you know great. what? We, we actually went over a little bit more than what we normally do, but I think it was, worthwhile because I think this is a, a very high yield topic and we went over it in a way that I think uh, junior residents, medical students can get something out of it as well as more senior residents and maybe even attendings can uh, learn something from some of the techniques that we talked about. So I, I, I really appreciate your time. I think this was an awesome episode. I think it's going to do great. Yeah, well, I appreciate you guys having me and apologize for getting off on the weeds and some of that stuff. But um but yeah, it's, uh, it's fun stuff to talk about and hopefully this is useful to your listeners. 
Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. We hope you guys enjoyed this episode with Dr. Gibbons on tibial plateau fractures. We enjoyed making this a lot. I know it's a little bit longer than our normal episodes, but he went over a lot. He did an excellent, excellent, excellent job in talking about plateau fractures. I hope you guys are definitely more knowledgeable about this right now. Um, and if you guys enjoyed this episode, please share this with a friend and go and leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. All right. Until next time.